Welcome to another episode of the Humming Projector podcast. Most of our episodes are about film projection, which is quite natural. But today we are going to talk about a different part of the world of film. In fact, the very first part of the whole chain of steps ending up in a projected image, namely filming with a camera. And with me today to talk about this, we have someone who has been here in a previous episode talking about Blackpool, namely Simon McConway. Welcome back, Simon, and thank you for joining us once again. Thank you for the invite. And with Simon, we have one of the other organizers at Blackpool, Mark Norton. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for taking your time to be here. No, very happy to be here. And this is not supposed to be about Blackpool, but we have to kind of mention it a little bit briefly, as both of you are in the organizers group. And the next Blackpool convention will be the 24th to the 26th of November 2023. So if you haven't already put that into our calendar, I recommend that you do so and you can always go back and listen to our second episode which was about Blackpool. But you are not only into the Blackpool convention, uh, of course you have other interests and one of those interests are uh, that you are both enthusiastic cameramen as well. And we have touched that subject very briefly last time Simon as I filmed a few feet with your camera. You did, and it came out that film that you took that you were worried about taking at Ivan. It's <laughs> come out really well, and it's come out so well. We're going to be showing it uh, either on the Friday or the Saturday, maybe even both, at Blackpool this year. But, like, I was always taught to keep the camera still. You gently moved the camera in and out of different, you know, diff- give different perspectives. And that taught me a, a bit about my own filming technique. So it was a really good film that you made. Oh, thank you. I really look forward to to, to watch that film because, uh, as you knew, I was quite nervous when I, when I was shooting with your camera. So let's start off with why are we still fascinated with shooting real film it's very expensive and it requires a lot more than shooting digital so for you why do you still feel that uh, that enjoyment of, of shooting with real film simon you can start off um well i think it's just an excuse to use the old equipment um and to view it on a projector instead of on a tv screen or instead of on a laptop screen as often is the case um it's for me a bit of a nod to the past so kind of when i was growing up a lot of things were being filmed on on film because that's all there was people didn't have iphones there wasn't even really very good video cameras um and so if you were being filmed it was going to be on super 8 so it's part of my past that i'm able to keep it alive in the year 2023 40 years kind of later it's still running it's still going well um, so that's kind of why I like to um, use Super 8 film. For me, it's uh, about the look of the film. You know, I, I get so bored with video. I tried a little bit of video, but, um, yeah, I mean, you can just shoot hours and hours and hours of video. But with film, you have to be very selective about what you shoot and how you compose the shot. And, and when, you, when you have uh, put your film together, you know, people sort of say, wow, that looks like it was filmed in 1970. They cannot believe that you filmed this just, you know, it's just your holiday or whatever you filmed just recently, just this year. And they really, it has got that uh, very kind of classic look to it that you just don't seem to get with anything else, you know. And uh, yeah, 
And of course, it's great playing with the various cameras as well. You know, I've got a few nice cameras now that I've collected over the years that I know that work well and different cameras for different situations. Uh, you know, obviously, it's not as easy as filming with digital because obviously you're limited with the with the film stock and the and the lighting capabilities of it. But uh, it's great fun. You know, I, I loved it when I got the old fashioned. You know that that light that you strike. You know the the indoor light that it's ridiculously bright. Uh, it only stays on for about um, you know sort of a minute before it it'll overheat and shut down. But uh, it's great when you get people posed in front of the camera, you get an old-fashioned cine light out, and <laughs> they all duck for cover because <laughs> the light's so bright from it, you know. So, yeah, you can have some fun as well. Yeah, and you summed up uh, part of what I find fascinating. I haven't been filming much, not anything near comp- uh, compared to what you do, but that, that part where you have to really think about what you are shooting, that's interesting. Because, for example, at Blackpool, one of the scenes that I took last time, I think I made 10 attempts to, to get what I wanted. You can't do that with film. You really have to, to think through and uh, and uh, you, you can't do it that way. Yeah. Exactly. I'm looking through the camera and I'm thinking, give me the shot, give me the shot. And sort of like many times the shot's not there. I mean, the content might be there, but the lighting's wrong, you know, or, you know, you've just missed what you wanted to get, you know. So, yeah, you have to be very, very selective about what you film. And it's after a while you can become that you almost edit it in the camera as you as you film your film, you know. So <laughs> rather than chopping it all up afterwards to put it in chronological order. And and for me also, I find it fascinating when um, you think about it. It all starts with that light hitting the film, uh, starting the chemical reaction of the of the silver. So you, in a different way than in video, I feel you actually capture the moment. It's there is no editing, there is no uh, changing of the of the captured image. What do you, the chemical reaction happening at that very moment is what you get mm. in the end result. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Hmm. What types of shooting do you do? Do you take family films, um, art type of uh, shooting or documenting uh, happenings? Or what what kind of shooting do you mostly do? Well, over the years, I've shot a lot of holiday films. All of my holiday films, you know, family holidays and stuff, have all been shot on Super 8. And nine times out of ten, somebody will come over. I'm sure you've had the same thing, Mark. Somebody will come over, a stranger, and they'll say, is that a Sydney camera? Have you got a film inside? Where do you get the films from? All the things that we're talking If only they knew about this podcast, uh, Ivan, it would answer all their questions for them. But when I was uh, when I was studying at university back in the day, about 20-odd years ago, uh, I shot a lot of film there of the things that we got up to. Um, and at the end of every year, so I did a four-year thing at university. At the end of every year, we had a reel of film. And back then, it was Super 8 Sound which I'm sure we'll talk about when it comes to talking about film stock. So I could record live sound. Um, I have to say my best films were never made on Super 8 Sound. They were made on Super 8 Silent because on Super 8 Sound, it was either you'd get perfect sound and a dreadful picture or, uh, you know, a dreadful sound and a perfect picture. I couldn't find, I couldn't concentrate on both at the same time. Um, and I've done the odd wedding as well. Wedding's a bit of a nightmare because people, you kind of, you know, they they they're used to a world of video. They're used to a world where you know the video might be three hours long. And I have to explain to them, you know, this will not be three hours long. This will be at most twenty minutes. There won't be any sound. 
Um, most people get, you know, because they've they know me and they've seen the films that I do. They understand the the kind of genre of film that the, 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 that there is no sound. Uh, and like Mark's just been saying, many uh, the last two weddings I've done, people have said it's the look of the film. We want to make it look like it. We were married, you know, years and years ago, and it's the look and the light and the color of the film that that they want. But I don't really do story films. I have done the odd one. It's just you know when I'm on holiday shooting something just to remind myself of the scene. Um, for me, that's the kinds of things that I shoot on film. Well, I've, I've had some sort of, uh, I've read about them really, but sort of clever ideas that really work is that, um, you know, we, we went, on, went on a holiday to Wales. And so what we did was we sort of um, dressed the kids up like little Welshmen. I gave them the script, you know, and they, they were saying things like jumbo sausage, you know, in, in Wales, in Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Of course, when, when we got the process filmed back after the holiday, because I scripted it, I, I knew what they said so that I could sit them down after I transferred it onto a computer and, and lay down a soundtrack in GarageBand on a Mac. And then afterwards, I could get the film striped and um, or just play it in sync with a CD after you'd burnt it off the computer, you know, and that really does add a lot to your films, you know, sort of putting that soundtrack in, you know, uh, and really making your holiday like a um, newsreel. <laughs> you know, uh, today we're here. Over to you, Ed Winchester, you know, back to Sandy Beach in the studio. <laughs> you know, these, these kind of things, you know, um, can be very, very humorous and add a lot to it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, striping film because that's kind of an issue. Um, it's not easy to get pre-striped uh, film stock anymore, is it? No. It's impossible. See, yeah. I was using Fuji uh, single egg uh, pre-striped stock for a while back, but now that's all gone. So the only option now, really, I mean, EVT Magnetics has gone as well. That was using striping. Yeah. So the only one is Alberto over in Italy. The films that I have sent him, he's done an excellent job, but I've only sent him... Uh, packaged commercial films i haven't sent in my own home movies because obviously they're one-offs and they are irreplaceable so i tend to yeah. use a sync box and uh run it in sync sound um through an elmore right. gs 1200 with a pedro sync box you know after i've made right. the soundtrack I've been experimenting with post-production uh, sound on a Norris uh, Electronic and also a Norimat Special D. Now, what those projectors, you may be familiar with them, they allow you to compose the soundtrack on a cassette. But the interesting thing is the projector keeps the cassette and the film in almost perfect sync. Um, it's a bit of a, a unique system. I don't know of any other projector manufacturer that produced anything like that. Um, and I'm still in the early stages, having just had the projector repaired and serviced, it's now you know working perfectly. This will allow me to have a bit more scope with what I do. But I think you know um, the other one that's available that I haven't got yet, the Studio 2000, that allows you to compose on a cassette, have the film striped, like what Mark said, and then it will put the music or whatever you've put on the cassette onto the stripe for you. Um, because the way that I was doing it, just running it back and forwards in the projector was a bit you know, unkind to the film. Recording yeah, yeah. directly on the stripe, I found that a real sort of stress. Um, yeah. And I think this cassette system, if, if, if I can get it to work to its full capacity, that, that'll be an interesting way of, you know, uh, of, and then that won't rely on stripe. 
because like Mark said, you know, sending stuff away to have it striped. And even then, sometimes um, the quality of stripe I was getting, not from the place that Mark mentioned, but from other, other places, the quality of that stripe was variable. Sometimes it was perfect. Other times it was not good. No, right. I've had the same thing where I've had a film striped and then all the sound stripes fell off it. <laughs> I put it through the yeah. computer. <laughs> Nightmare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so not good. Duran had quite a bit of a problem when they uh, ran out of pre-striped uh, stock. I, I think Jed mentioned that in Blackpool last time that they had to use quite a bit of time to n nail it uh, with, with the striping themselves. Mm, yeah, they did. Yes, yeah. Mm. So, so what kind of film stocks uh, are it uh, are out there? Um, the Kodachrome that everybody loved, at oh. least I did, uh, is gone. Yeah, it was very complex to develop. So, and so that's not around anymore. If I hear another person saying, uh, "I've got, I've got a fridge full of Kodachrome," um, I'm thinking of getting it processed. <laughs> that I think it should be a law passed. I mean, yeah, they could get it processed at a huge cost, and it wouldn't be color; it would be black and white. Uh, it would take months to have it done. It's just not. Not worth it. I think the only thing those cartridges are useful for now, uh, unless you've got some weird thing about processing it in coffee, which, again, it's just going to be for the best results. If you want to project it, I've found that it's the new um, Kodak Ektachrome 100D. I say new. It's been there since 2018. Um, Kodak have um, been making sure they improve on that. So recently, uh, well, at the end of last summer, um, I got a free cartridge of Kodak 100D, and Kodak said they uh, had made some changes. Would I run the camera through? Uh, sorry, would I run the film through a number of cameras and let them know whether it got stuck, whether it was, you know, good or bad or whatever? So, and that was encouraging for me because it showed that Kodak was still trying to improve on the product, which is now getting on for 50 years old. Um, they're still making changes. They still want to make it the very best that they uh, can. So if it's straightforward, you want to film something and project it, then for me, it's got to be the uh, the, the, the Kodak Ektachrome 100D. Not cheap, but it is very, very good. Yeah, I find the same. It's, it's got a fine grain. It's got good colour saturation. The cartridges run well and don't um, jam. And it's quite flexible, isn't it? I mean, if it's not quite – if you, you can overexpose it a bit and it still looks fine – and good latitude on it, you know, and uh, yeah, it's readily available. It is, is expensive, and it's a simple E6 process, E6 process, like most of them are these days, you know. I mean, I was using the Fuji uh, film a lot, which I didn't think had as good a colour saturation to it, but it was only for the fact that I like these little Fuji P2 cameras, and I've got one with a CinemaScope lens on it, that um, CinemaScope came out very well, and they're so light and portable um you know so that that's uh the nice thing about those cameras but super eight wise i think the best one that i've got is the niso professional it comes out very very contrasty very good color saturation on that i think it's got something like 180 degrees shutter in it um i've got a canon 310xl which has got a i think it's a 220 existing light shutter and that's good but on very sunny days it can look a bit bleached and washed out you know um but uh Various cameras, horses for courses. What's your favourite camera, Simon? Um, well, uh, my favourite camera for the best results is the one that Ivan used at Blackpool, which was the Canon 1014XLS. It's 
its only downfall is it's big and it's bulky and it's heavy. It's if you were going like let's say you were going skiing, you really wouldn't be you really wouldn't want to be dragging a camera like that around. It's 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 it really is big. Mm. Um, so the Lucina RT1 still quite heavy, but again some superb results from that. Um, Bell and Howell made a number of different cameras. So um, at the recent BFCC, uh, I, although I couldn't film inside, sadly it was too dark. But it, I, I'd taken along my uh, two one four six. So that's a nice camera, bit bit a little bit lighter weight, brilliant brilliant lens. But mm. um, this camera here that I'm looking at now, this is a Umig twenty three XL. This is far more compact. Um, it's I wouldn't say the I wouldn't say it's pocket size like the uh, the P range cameras that Mark's mentioned first in Glade, but it's the kind of camera that you could maybe get into a small um, rucksack or it, it actually came with its own leather case, um, something like that. You know, it's important to um, I've tested all these cameras out, not this Umic one because it's only just arrived, but I normally run about ten. Get the end of the end of the cartridge, I'll do ten seconds in this camera. 10 seconds in that camera, 10 seconds in this camera, just to see which one is given the best uh, best results. But time after time after time, that uh, Canon 1014 XLS, it is, you know, sort of what, what I'm finding is it is, um, you know, streets ahead of any of the other cameras personally that I've used. And that's my personal taste. Other people might not see that or might not think that. But um, the other thing is it's very reliable. I've had cameras that have stopped halfway through. You'll just be filming, stop. No reason for it except that the camera has probably reached the end of its life. Um, from the Canon stuff, I think it's so well made uh, that the chances of that happening are, are, are quite, it's going to be quite rare, thankfully. That's, again, just my opinion. I'm not basing that on any hard and fast evidence. One of my favourites is the Umig Nautica as well. I've used that. Oh, yeah. Just an easy point-and-shoot camera. Everything's always in focus, you know, and, uh, yeah, you can't take bad film with it, really. And and that it's waterproof as well is great. Yeah. The only camera I've been filming with is um, the family's old uh, Bauer camera. I can't remember, unfortunately, the, the, the nice. number of it. Uh, but but uh, the fun of using that one is, is the same camera that was used when I was little. So, um, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, one of the fun things I did with the camera was um, filming my parents at the same place they were filming that was standard eight back in the day. Uh, but when they were filming standard eight uh, in the late sixties, uh, I filmed them again uh, many years later uh, at the same spot. Uh, so it's interesting to have well, both. I mean, it's interesting uh, that you mentioned that. It's kind of reminded me all the film and all the cameras that we've talked about so far have all been super eight. And it is very, very convenient and it is very straightforward. But I've done a lot of filming as well on standard eight. Um, so obviously, most people will, will uh, know this, but the Super 8 film comes in a cartridge. You literally drop it in the camera and then that's it. You wait away you go. With the standard 8 film, it comes, it's actually 16 millimeters wide. You have to thread it through a camera, run the first half through. Then, when you finish the first half, turn the film over and expose the second half. Um, and um, again, it's the, the, the modern film stocks that are available are, are, are pretty much the same. Most are E6 processable. Um, there's a bit more hassle because of the threading of the camera, and it is possible to make a mistake. I think with Super 8, you'd be pushing it to make a mistake. You can't not 
put it in right. The cartridge is designed on Super Eight to be only used correctly. But again, some of those cameras for um, standard eight, like um, Bolex H eight and the Bolex range, beautiful lenses, very very well well made, and unlike a lot of Super Eight cameras, highly reliable because the clockwork. There's no batteries to leak. Um, there's, there's obviously you've got to take a lot more care, and in some of them, set the exposure meter yourself manually. But um, the qualities, the quality is um, still there. When you mentioned standard eight, Ivan, it reminded me about um, my standard eight experiences. Yeah, and um, as you said, the convenience of, of using that uh, that uh, cassette was um, that was a big, big, big change that made it possible for a lot more than the uh, big enthusiasts to use it. Uh, but again, I mentioned the Kodachrome um, the films. We have the family films back to, I think, 1967. It's amazing how well the colors have preserved. Mm. Yeah, I have those as well. Yeah. Fantastic colors on those films. We've got old Christmas things and uh, filmed. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's like it was shot yesterday. You know, it's not lost any of its color. And uh, even the standard eight stuff, surprisingly sharp, you know, uh, surprisingly good quality. My earliest standard eight film, I, I have to say I inherited this. I didn't, I wasn't around in 1953, but it was shot in 1953 by my late great auntie who actually got me interested a lot in cine. And like Marcus said, the color is superb. It's as if that was shot last week. It really has lasted. It's been stored well, though. It's been stored in a cool and dry place. Um, and obviously that will have added to its longevity, but it's amazing to think. That it's that it's what's that is that 70 years old mark 53 to 2023 is that 50 it is isn't it i think yeah i think it is yes <laughs> and, and the film uh the film stock i was using when i, I shot super 8 last time was uh the whitner uh stock uh that's made of agfa i think mm-hmm. uh, and uh, i think it was looking really well but i will make sure to to try the new uh, Kodak film uh, all of those we have mentioned here is e6 and for I guess most people know, but that's reversal stock. But there are uh, some. It's it's still uh, possible to to shoot uh, on on negative stock. Uh, yeah. I've seen I've seen some uh, some enthusiasts are, are shooting negative, and then they uh, of course they can uh, make make a copy to uh, to make it positive again. But uh, many people are actually not projecting it. That hurts a little bit to thinking about it. But many people are. Uh, just scanning it and and then using it digitally and and convert it back to to positive again, mm. but the but it's still possible to get a negative. And I I guess if you're supposed to edit the film, perhaps that's the way to go. Because have you tried editing uh, your super ed film? Then you have a lot of splices when you're working reversal. Have you done that, or yeah. are you always uh, shooting uh, well, I mean, and keeping it as is? I, I remember I use an Agfa Eight S tape splicer, which I've, you can still get the tapes for. And I read an article many years ago. There's always somebody who says, oh, it's all going to fail. It's all going to drop apart. This 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 person reckoned that for tape splices, they had a life of 20 years. So for the for the film where I did most editing, it was this university film where I was editing sections in. And those splices were put in, in there in 1997. So that's uh, 25, 26 years, I think, according to my math. And each and every splice is still is still perfect. Um, it, it's an, a simple Elmo 912, I think, editor that I was using. I do have a sound editor, uh, a GoPro one, but uh, yeah, it's very straightforward. And and you know, with it, with it, you know, some people said, "Oh, cement splices is the only way you can do it." Well, actually, 
those tape splices have lasted a long time. What, what, what about you, Mark? What, what do you use? Well, yeah, I've got a Sir CIR splicer, you know, um, it only covers two frames, but I find if you rub it down really, really hard, then um, it does hold, you know, well enough. Uh, I haven't had any splices fail, but the part I love about um, editing is that it's trying to hold all the information in your mind. You get your various shots back, you may, you know, you've been on holiday, you might have shot four or five reels of Super 8, and, um, and then it sort of, you watch them and then holding it all in your mind and then trying to put them into an order and cutting it up and putting it in the right sequence, you know, to make it tell a cohesive sort of uh, story, you know, and rather than just random shots, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I find it very engaging. And um, even if it's just a, a basic film, I can put a really loose sync music to it, you know, and, and it usually comes out very well. It's surprising how easily, just random music fits um, home shot Super 8. Yeah. You know, it gives it a other depth, another dimension. You know, I'm lucky enough to have a dedicated cinema room, you know, with nice surround sound and everything, so we can put these films on a big screen in perfect viewing conditions. And with nice music, you know, it's it's all you'd wish for. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. You don't always need perfect sync sound. <laughs> And with the CIR splicer, as you mentioned, if 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 it should fall off, it's just it, it's very quick to 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 fix it again. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. So I I think that's not a big deal. And with a GS twelve hundred that I have, and I guess a lot of other projectors as well, you can even uh, continue where you left off. Yeah. One uh, one thing I've been thinking about uh, when watching film uh, that's uh, silent is that when we are watching family films uh, back home with my parents and, and my my siblings what we do when it's it's a silent film we actually are able to talk and, and comment on things and remember things together when it's silent if if you're watching a, a video with with sound everybody has to keep silent and, yeah. and and listen to the listen to the audio but with the silent you can actually sit around and watching together and remember things together uh, so that's a quite different experience and i mean that's it even when even when super 8 sound was available in other words you could record live sound it was often people would have to you, you would say right when you see the red light come on you can start talking it just made it not natural it just made it a bit stunted um whereas with the silent stock like you just you said it perfectly there ivan you can provide your own soundtrack, a soundtrack which updates itself as the years go by. So, like, if you watched that film 20 years ago, you'd have been providing a different soundtrack to the one that you were providing last time you watched it, maybe last year. And I think that's, again, something that's something that's unique about, you know, having silent pictures. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, and, yeah, you can put different music on and it can completely change the mood of the film you're watching, you know, you can put a very upbeat music on or something that's a bit more, uh, you know, um, slow and mellow. And uh, yeah, it does give it a different feel each time you watch it as well. And, and as you say, you can, you can, everybody's free to talk and, oh, I remember that, that look at this person, you know, it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's great. You know, it's, uh, it, it does work surprisingly well. And one, one thing that uh, I'm not sure everybody knows unless they have uh, shot, I guess most people do, but anyways, I can mention it, is that, uh, film you shoot yourself is on 18 frames per second not 24 so so for me the different speed of the projector 
instantly reminds me of the of the the times I watched film with my family. So mm. I, if I if I turn my my projector down to eighteen uh, frames per second, I instantly think family family movies. Yeah, I mean a, a lot of these new camera well. It, more expensive cameras, more sophisticated cameras will film at 24, 25 frames a second. But uh, yeah, there, there's a magic of uh, it is better quality at the higher frame rate, of course, but there's something more nostalgic about 18 frames a second, you know, and it, it sort yeah. of fits in with that look because it's very, very slightly, I suppose, juddery. It, it, it all adds that nostalgic look and that nostalgic feel that um, people cry out for you know it's uh, it's part of the magic i think yeah well in fact um ivan uh, you were may not remember but a few years ago at blackpool i was shooting some film again and i decided to shoot it at 24 frames a second i think i think you may have encouraged me to to actually try that mark mm-hmm. and yeah obviously the cartridge of film lasted a lot less long but the picture was almost too steady it was almost like it, I, I like that movement. I like that that sort of uh, animation in itself that comes from film. That wasn't there. Yeah, the quality was higher. The panning seemed to be a bit smoother. But it was interesting just to try it at 24 frames a second to see how it was. Yeah, and, and it would require even more light, I guess. So Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't actually checked that, but I, it makes sense mm. that uh, you, you need a quicker treasure. So uh, if you already have problems with a dark room, that wouldn't won't help either so i guess probably there were those two reasons combined that the the length of the film and, and also the, the the light uh yeah would make sense to to slow it down a bit that's right there there was a new camera on its way from from kodak that was uh, announced a few years back and then it all went silent uh did you did you read about that yeah yeah in fact the magazine uh quite a few magazines covered uh different articles about that the reason was never made clear in fact the question is may it still appear one year in the future who knows yeah who knows well the the, the price was quite prohibitive as well wasn't it i mean it was um it was quite expensive what was it It, i think it was about 1500 2000 uh, euros something about that kind of so, yes yeah something like kind that. of money but then again you know when you looked at the features that the camera had you know you had the digital capability of an sd card as well as film so it was it was good in a way that you could actually see what you'd shot straight away via the sd card what you just shot on the film so i suppose it would record to both mediums at the same time so uh, yeah yeah and and also used it to record the audio, I think. Yes, I think, yeah. I think that it did, yes. But perhaps that was, uh, they were aiming for a different kind of uh, uh, different kind of people because it's all also used in, in professional ways. Of course, uh, as you also have done uh, shooting weddings, but uh, some some more famous music videos has been shot in Super 8. And I went, when I checked a bit uh, on, on pro8millimeter.com, they also had an article about TV series being being shot on Super 8, like the mm-hmm. the rise of the Lakers dynasty that's now on, on HBO Max. Uh, that's been shot on Super 8, so it's actually been used um, professionally as well. So perhaps that was what they were aiming for. Uh, the price tag would suggest that at least. Mm, yeah. yeah, it seemed like that there, there was the demand for the camera, wasn't it? You know, I think that they were inundated with orders at the start. Well, that would be echoing the fact as well, Mark, that um, I understand that Kodak are struggling to keep up with the demand for the Super 8 film. So 
Um, there's uh, a waiting list. Oh, really? uh, I mean, all the suppliers that I've used haven't, you know, they've they've had plenty of plenty of stock. Um, but I think, you know, even away from Cine, I think uh, there's been a shortage of film worldwide with the resurgence of interest that you know people have had in not only Cine but taking still pictures on film as well. You know, away from the digital world that we're told is the best, people like the world of analog. Well, just at the um, BFCC at the weekend, um, John Clancy had on uh, 4K video a film that somebody had entirely shot in America um, on a Canon uh, 5.1. What's the silver solid thing? 5.18. 5.18. And they shot the entire film on that. And that was a mainstream film that was shown in theatres, in cinemas. Not on Super 8, obviously. It was all filmed and originated on Super 8 reversal stock and then sort of um, transferred to 4K video and shown in theatres, this film. So, uh, it, it, and it, it did look surprisingly good. Yes. You know, at the time, we were, we were comparing 35mm to 4K and this 4K obviously had been originated from Super 8. So, it's uh, yeah, it is amazing what you can get out of that tiny frame. I wonder if they... Um those that use it for TV series recording, uh, if they have the same type of cartridges uh, or if they have bigger ones, because if they use the standard Super 8 cartridges, they have quite a bit of logistics of them, to yeah. <laughs> take care of. <laughs> um, so how do you look at the future of filming, uh, considering the new film stock and, and things like that, but also with the old cameras starting to show its age? How do you look at the, the age of uh, filming on Super 8? I think there definitely needs to be a new camera because, like we've already discussed and found out from our own experiences, that these cameras uh, can, not all, but can be a little bit unreliable. Um, in terms of the future, I think as long as Kodak continue making the excellent film stock that they have produced, because let's not forget they also produce uh, black and white Super 8, um, the negative stock that we've seen, and uh, our personal favourite, the 100D, uh, which is the one that you can project straight away. As long as that's kept um, running, then I think then the future is is definitely there. Um, as long as people are careful with the cameras that they choose, because I imagine there may be one or two people who, um, you know, buy it buy a camera, it lets them down, and they think, oh, I'm not going to bother. So if they choose a camera that's that's of a high specification in the first place maybe even a little bit more expensive, that would be a better foundation for them to start their filming on than a, a cheap camera that lets them down. Um, and I think as long as the processing is available, I think the processing will, as long as people continue taking slides, which is transparencies produced uh, and processed using the E6, um, I think there's definitely a, a, a feature there. And this last point I would make is um, that the fact that Kodak have, have clearly shown they're still developing the product, as in making it better, improving it. I think that's uh, a good sign for the future. What do you reckon, Mark? Oh no, I to completely agree. Yeah, you know, I think that there, this, it, everybody's, um, well, the, the the digital thing. I think uh, you know, even when we were comparing it the other day, I mean, it looked very colourful, very bright. But you, when you really look at the blacks and stuff, you know, it, you could tell it was a digital film. Um, when you, when you compared that to thirty five millimeter, you know, which was shown along side by side, I mean, thirty five millimeter, the extra, it wasn't as colourful as the four K, but the depth of it and the clarity and the detail in it was 
very apparent. You know, it was um, very much more detailed, sharper, a lot more information in the frames, I think, than what you were getting from 4K digital, you know. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I did go to the um, Hateful Eight uh, roadshow that was well attended when that was in London, and that was a 70-millimeter presentation, wasn't it, that they uh, put on film, and it was lovely. Yeah. I think a lot of people do like to see film, you know, um, you can see the difference, you know, IMAX, uh, et cetera, all that kind of thing. So if, if some of the listeners want to try this, what, what kind of recommendations do you have? Uh, you have mentioned that the, the cheapest camera may fail, but also your top of the line cannons are like super expensive. So what would you, what would you recommend for people wanting to try this? What about a couple of basic tips? I mean, this camera that I held up earlier, the UMID 23XL, was one of the ones that you might have avoided on, on eBay because it was it was stated this has not been tested. The this is this could be spares or repairs, and yet it's worked out really really well. So I think buy it buy it buy a camera and run through a couple of simple tests. So one of the ones I always do is switch on the camera and shine my mobile phone light, the torch on my mobile phone, into the lens. And I look into the lens carefully to see if I can see the exposure um, fins of metal moving. So there's some tiny blades, maybe is a better word. If you can see them moving uh, in time with you moving the light past the lens, chances are the exposure system will be working. And then if you put if you put the power on the camera and you just shoot without filming, if you hear the motor working, chances are that. That will um, that will that camera will probably work. This camera was dead when I put the batteries inside. So a really great trick I learned off a off a car mechanic is put vinegar, very small amount, on the contacts uh, in the battery compartment, and that will just clean them up. Um, it'll get rid of any tarnishing that you cannot see with the naked eye. And surprisingly, I did this today. Tiny bit of vinegar on the contacts let it dry, put the batteries back in, new batteries, of course, and it sprang into life. So I'm 99% this camera here will work because the batteries are now working. The exposure system is now working. The only real test, of course, is to run a few seconds of film through. But those other tests give you a level of confidence. Um, so, yeah, as you know, bearing those tips in mind, they should help you. Um, the vinegar tip, by the way, will not always work. So sometimes cameras... Have got corroded inside they will not work if you put vinegar on the comp on the contacts but um you know with cameras being so cheap surely you can afford a few and hopefully if you say bought three really cheaply on ebay one of them might work um but yeah the only real true test is to try um to put some film through which is expensive and that's the thing isn't it the film's going to cost more than the bloody camera that's <laughs> <laughs> I found that the best um, the best film that I've taken has been with the simplest cameras. You know, it's either been with the silly Fuji P2, which isn't that got that sharper lens on it, but it, it's good enough. And instead of zooming, you know, I could just walk forward at somebody because um, it's got a thick zoom lens. But everything's in focus. When I use the really complicated cameras like the Niso and stuff, you can get some fantastic shots of it, but there's always a lot I have to edit out that's not quite in focus, you know, or I've tried to do a lack dissolve and I've, you know, sort of wobbled the camera too much, you know, um, but with the easy point and shoot cameras, you know, I find that um, you, all you're thinking about is just composing your frame, composing your shot and taking the image rather than thinking how do I focus it, you know, um, you know, and, and all the rest of it and setting zooms and stuff, you know, so... Uh, 
I think it's best to start off with a, a simple camera. You know, I'm a great fan of getting candid shots and something you can just pick up and point and shoot, you know. But, uh, yeah, this horse is the courses. You know, if you want to go and do some wildlife shots and things, it's great to have a camera or a tripod with a big lens that you can get in, and, you know. But, uh, yeah, it, it depends what it's for. And, and one thing that might be worth uh, noticing is that uh, you might find uh, a button on your camera to switch between indoor and outdoor shooting because some ah, of the cameras cool. had that, uh, ah, that yeah. gel that was going in front of it to uh, to switch between indoor and outdoor uh, filming. How is the new Kodak uh, stock? Because uh, when I bought that uh, Whitner stock, I was supposed to have the, the indoor light uh, button switched on, but filming outdoors. <laughs> So the little switch there is always switched on the new film stock to the indoor setting, which removes that filter. That filter, I believe, was originally designed for the Kodachrome 40 uh, film stock, which is not available anymore. Right. Um, so to get the true color reproduction um, and the best, because those filters that you're sliding in front of the lens have deteriorated now, so they would actually take off some of the quality. If you slid the switch to the indoor setting, which is often a light bulb setting, you've taken that filter away from the camera and it's straight through, the light is straight through onto the film. I think I think I'm right in saying that, Mark, aren't I? Yeah, no, the modern film stops are daylight balanced, whereas the um uh, the old Kodachrome 40 was tungsten balanced film for filming indoors with cine lights and the yellow filter swung in front to correct that and make it um daylight balance for filming outside so uh yeah the, with the modern film stops you don't want the filter in there you know you want that swung out of the way so always to the light bulb settings so um for those again that wants to to try this do you have any place to uh to point them to 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 learn more about this uh, do you have any special books or, or other resources that you would recommend well there's an excellent magazine that you can subscribe to called super 8 Jaden Lasso is the editor. He puts it together. Uh, if but if you Google Super Eight magazine, you can subscribe to it online. I think it's about sixty euros, but that's that's you know all the editions that you'll get annual, you know, across one year. So it, it is it is good. And if you happen to be in Berlin, I, I'm sure you already know, but he has a shop that's called Click und Zu uh, in in Berlin that you can visit there, where he I think he sells film stock and and things related to film shooting. Mm. So are there anything else you want to uh, to add uh, before we wrap up? I think it sometimes can be people can get obsessed by the cost of it. And yeah, we've already said it's not the film stock is is not cheap. It never has. Cine films always been quite expensive compared to day to day items that we may need to buy in life. But some of the films that I shot kind of 20, 30 years, I started shooting film in 1992 those films now are priceless because some of the people on their relatives are no longer with us. So those films are now priceless. And never, ever, when I fed up the projector, do I think, oh, this cost me X number of pounds. What I'm thinking about is this film is allowing me to bring the past back to life. And that is a priceless, priceless thing. Um, I think film outlasts the digital images because we know that they can be corrupted or just generally lost. Once it's on film, it's on there forever. Um, and I think that that's what makes it special for me. Yeah, and what you can't get with the with the video is the feeling I uh, I I had kind of forgot, but when I tried to shoot Super 8 again, the feeling when you get the film back from oh, development yeah. and it's been a while since you shot it, and that excitement of uh, wondering if it was successful or or not. Uh, 
that kind of feeling you never get with a with a digital because you get that instant feedback and sometimes mm -hmm. you get uh, disappointed and sometimes you are really thrilled with the result like the, like the blackpool film ivan i was really thrilled when i got genuinely was when i got that back you'll see why everybody you'll see why when if you come to blackpool this year uh, i look forward to that and it is uh, on, on Friday 24th to uh, Sunday 26th of November 2023 at yep. the Blackpool Grand Hotel. So I hope to see you there for those that have the opportunity. And a perfect chance to buy a cheap cine projector. I mean, there's a lot of excellent UMIGs around that anybody can use and they don't scratch film. And you can buy a cheap camera and away you go, you know, um, buy a rid of cartridge. Yeah, and you're all set. Have a go. You're all set. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode and want to follow us, you can listen to us and subscribe to our podcast using players like Pocket Casts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pandora and YouTube. You can also use any podcast player supporting RSS. Go to our website hummingprojector.com to learn how to subscribe. You can also listen to the current and previous episodes on our website without any additional software. If you have any feedback for this episode or a suggestion for a future episode, please send an email to feedback at hummingprojector.com. And with that, we have reached the end of this podcast. So, and thank you so much to both of you, Simon McConway and Mark Norton, for taking your time to talk about filming with Super 8 with me. Thank you very much. Thank you.